We will be in Matthew chapter 12 today, so you can be turning there. Uh, the last I checked, there were about 170,000 words in the English language, of which most of us, if English is your first language, you know only about 20 to 30,000 of those words. That is a little deflating to realize you may know only one-fifth of the language you grew up with all your life. So the next time you tell someone, I don't have words for how bad it was, you're probably right. <laughs> but take heart, many of the words in our language are synonyms of other words. And we need synonyms. We need words that have the same or similar meanings of other words, and we need them perhaps more than we realize. And for that, we can thank a guy named Roger. Peter Mark Roger, R-O-G-E-T, was a British physician who lived more than 150 years ago. He was committed to helping people through the healing arts, but he is better known today for helping those, and this is how he put it, who are painfully groping their way and struggling with the difficulties of composition. And so he published in 1852 a book titled Thesaurus of English Words and Phrases. The book was a huge success going through 28 printings in the last 17 years of his life. So all you struggling physicians out there, don't give up hope. So a thesaurus is a treasury of words. It's a word that Matthew uses. Thesaurus is the Greek word for treasure, and Matthew uses it twice. So read with me now, Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So to this point in Matthew's gospel, we've encountered more than 10 episodes are instances of Jesus healing people. And for some of the miracles that Matthew records, we find teachings connected to them, and this is one of them. But of all the miracles, this is the one that is most concerned with words and hearing. This miracle has the most words attached to it, and it begins with a man who has no words. And this is under the first point on your outline, an empty treasure. Verse 22, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Well, right away, we need to deal with the sometimes controversial issue of what demon oppression or possession is. And one extreme I think we can go to and I, I really, I think it's common in our Christian culture today, is to think that if some have put it, there's a demon behind every rock. I have a close relative. He's a believer in Christ who said recently that Christians need to be careful if they let their kids go trick-or-treating on Halloween since some of the candy might be cursed because of demonic activity. But we'll see later that that's believing the devil has a lot more power than he actually has. Christ's death on the cross changes everything about the world and the way that we relate to it. And sadly, it seems that some Christians are more concerned about the possible presence of a demon they don't know than the very real presence of the Holy Spirit they do know. The next time your kids offer you trick-or-treat candy, just eat the candy. <laughs> Not everybody who was healed by Jesus was demon-oppressed. Of the ten instances of healing that I mentioned, only one of them involves someone with demon oppression. The rest were simply sick or disabled or dead. But there's another extreme to which Christians can sometimes go, and I think it might be prevalent among us, among our circles of like-minded churches. And this is the view that, that every malady and sickness can be explained entirely by medicine, entirely by scientific reasoning. But to think like that is to somehow think that God's economy of the world has changed since the scriptures were written. It hasn't. It hasn't. Satan is still at work. Satan is still inflicting pain on people's minds and bodies. And we may not know the whys and the wherefores and the whatnots of demon activity, but we can pray. We can pray for people. In whatever circumstances a person may be, we can pray, we can ask the Lord to restrain the devil's influence. This man who was demon-oppressed was brought to Jesus. Someone 
had to gently take him by the arm to the very God who created him. He had no vocabulary. He didn't know what to think about Jesus because he had never heard of him. He had no words for him. His treasure chest was empty. If you're reading from the English Standard Version, the the ESV, and actually many English translations, it, it says that he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. But the Greek is more accurately translated as he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. So what Matthew is trying to make a point here. This man, who could neither hear nor speak, can now do both. Jesus has given him words. The man who had no words, had nothing, now had a treasure. He had a treasure filled with words about Jesus. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Well, son of David is in Matthew's treasure chest. He uses it more than all other New Testament writers combined. It's important to his gospel, and it's important to the story we're looking at today. The people were amazed when they witnessed what Jesus had done. But their question, can this be the son of David? It was not a question that sprang from faith. Unlike the blind and deaf man, These people had some vocabulary, but it was meager. It was limited. It was not enough. And this is the second sub-point on your outline, a limited treasure. These people, and it was the great majority of them, understood Scripture in a way that was more informed by their culture than by Scripture itself. They knew about Abraham. They knew about Noah and Moses and King David. They knew that you weren't supposed to cook with bacon fat. They knew that you weren't supposed to pick grain on the Sabbath because, well, didn't somebody say we shouldn't do that? Their credit score was low, even if they did know the phrase, son of David. In the book of 2 Samuel, we read about David's rise to the throne of Israel. We read about his military campaigns his many, the many political intrigues that are going on, even his grievous and very public moral failings. But in chapter 7, we come to a high point in David's life as king. David wanted to build a structure, a house for the Lord. But the Lord told David that a house, a house of a different nature, would be built for him. And from this house was the line of kings after David. And there would come a king who would rule over his kingdom forever. The Lord tells David that this this king, the greater son of David, shall build a house for my name. Shall build a house for my name. We'll see how that happens later. Did the crowd who witnessed Jesus' miracle know this? No, they didn't. They knew only the bare outline of the story just as they probably knew very little of their own scriptures, what today we call the Old Testament. John the Baptist knew. When he was at the lowest point in his life, when he was in prison, he didn't need to see Jesus do something miraculous to prove that he was the one who was to come. 
Note what happened. This is in Matthew 11, which we looked at just a few weeks ago. It says this. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. All that John needed was for Jesus to remind him of what the prophet Isaiah had spoken concerning the deeds of the coming one. John needed to remember the mighty works of the Lord just as we need reminding today. It was enough for John because he knew what was written in the scriptures. But are we like that crowd today? Do we sometimes think to ourselves, God, if you just do something miraculous, I will never doubt you again. I will trust you forever. That won't happen. Your faith in God will not be greater if you see something miraculous happen. Your faith in God will not be greater if you have all your science questions answered. Your faith in God will not be greater if your health improves or if you have more money in the bank or if your team wins the game next Sunday. Your faith will grow only as you engage in God's word, only as you engage in it through reading, only as you engage in it through hearing, through hearing it preached, through hearing it one-on-one, through hearing it in prayer, through hearing it in the singing, through hearing it in community with fellow believers, through hearing it and working it out by serving others. Your faith in God will grow only through the help of the Holy Spirit and only through the Word of God. The Spirit of God will change you, but He will do it only as you are engaged in the Word of God. The Spirit of God does the work of God by the Word of God. But there were some in the crowd who were willfully blind and deaf. They didn't want to see or hear what Jesus was doing. And they didn't want others to hear either. This is the third subpoint on your screen, an evil treasure. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Do we wonder that some people, when they hear the gospel, never even begin to understand? The parable of the four soils, we'll hear about that in a couple of weeks, addresses this very issue. We'll leave that for later, but just know for now that just as God uses people to do good to believers, we call this the means of grace, so also the devil uses people to deceive others, to turn people away from the truth, to turn people away from even wanting to hear the truth. Satan will use people to misrepresent the faith, to caricature it, to lie about it, even to say bizarre and irrational things about it. And it's something we see in this passage. The Pharisees' bizarre accusation It's really just low-hanging fruit on the tree of critical thinking. 
I can just hear a young person in the crowd looking up and saying, Mom, what those guys said? That doesn't make any sense. But mom and dad and everyone else who saw the miracle and heard the question about the son of David were afraid. They were afraid to speak against the Pharisees. Jesus wasn't. Well, the rest of our passage today deals with Jesus' response to this evil treasure. But there, there are some other things we should consider in his response, so I'll break it down like this. And this is the second point in our outline, a kingdom of words. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Jesus is not mind reading here. He doesn't have to. He knows their thoughts because he hears their words, and their words reveal the evil they have squirreled away in their treasure chest. And Jesus continues, And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus is easily refuting their argument, but he's doing more than just winning the kindergarten club debate. If Jesus is the son of David, if Jesus is the son of David, then he is building his kingdom. The kingdom that God promised to David, as I mentioned earlier. He cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and this means that the kingdom of God has come upon them. If Jesus is the son of David, he is also building his house, just as he promised to David so many generations ago. But how? How is he building his house? He does it by binding the strong man. Verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. We know who the strong man is, it's Satan. And Satan's house, just like David's house, it's not a structure, it's a whole people group, regardless of race, color, or nationality. It's a people who are held captive by him. Paul tells Timothy, and this is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that those who oppose the gospel, and that's everyone who does not trust in Christ, those who oppose the gospel are in the snare of the devil and have been captured by him to do whatever he pleases. Who can bind the strong man? Only someone who is stronger. Jesus is stronger. Jesus has bound the strong man. Look at what Satan was doing in Job's day. This is long before Jesus came to establish his kingdom. In the book of Job, in chapter 1, we read about this exchange between God and the adversary. And it says this, The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it, the devil is basically saying, I'm going anywhere I please. Not anymore. Jesus told his disciples, and this is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, 
I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He fell from his place of greater power and control. That is why Paul told the unbelieving crowd at Lystra, this is in Acts chapter 14, that in past generations, God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. God let them do whatever they pleased, whatever they wanted. But because of the cross, Satan is bound, but not completely. Just as the already and not yet apply to believers in Christ, so it also applies to Satan. He's bound now, and yet he still has some freedom. That's the already. But he will be completely bound on that last day, the day of judgment. In former times, this is, these are the times before Christ came, Satan had free reign. He roamed wherever he pleased. He was the, uh, he was the fox in the hen house, feasting on the chicken buffet. But now he must hunt for his prey. As the Apostle Peter says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter chapter 5. That verse is a sober warning to believers. The devil is still active. And yet, he must seek his prey because he's no longer free to roam. God has restrained him. The strong man has been bound by one who is stronger. And Jesus is plundering his house. All people by birth are held captive to do his will. They are citizens of the kingdom of darkness, Colossians chapter 1. They follow the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2. They have no understanding of the things of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But Jesus sets the captive free, Psalm 120. Jesus opened blind eyes to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Jesus makes the deaf to hear the voice of the Son of God, Matthew chapter 12. These are kingdom words. Jesus is building his kingdom, and he's doing it with words. The kingdom of God has come upon you. It's what he told the Pharisees and to anyone who was willing to listen. This is the long-awaited king and his kingdom. All that has happened before, the rebellion in the garden, the destruction of the world by a flood, the faltering steps of faith in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the rescue of God's people in Egypt by a savior, Moses, the rise of the house of Saul, and then the house of David, the kings that followed in David's line, I'm skipping so much in the biblical story. All of history, and not just Israel's history, all of history has converged to this one point. Jesus came to this world in poverty. He grew up in obscurity. He proclaimed the gospel in the midst of hostility. And when he came to the temple, the dwelling place of God, his own people, the nation of Israel, responded with one big collective yawn. And if his kingdom, if his kingdom has come upon us, then he can say without apology, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So this is strange. This is strange to our American, I can do whatever I please ears. But if God made you, 
Doesn't he have the right to claim ownership over everything you have, every breath you take, every word you speak, every step you walk, every thought you think? As Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Paul make very clear, the potter really does have a right to do whatever he wants with the clay vessel he's made. God made you. But here's the amazing thing. Those who give themselves most to the authority of King Jesus have the most freedom in this world. Why? Because the world and everything in it belongs to him. Psalm 24. Because he does whatever he pleases with anything he owns. Psalm 115. Because all things are his servants. Psalm 119. Therefore, therefore, we come to a difficult saying for many Christians who really are fearful of dying. Verses 31 and 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Well, Jesus is not saying here, and this should be obvious, that everyone who doesn't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is going to heaven. We have no record of Judas Iscariot, Iscariot ever blaspheming the Spirit, but yet we know where he landed. If you're a Christian, and this verse has bothered you because you're wondering, or if you have, or maybe ever will, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, I want you to be comforted by this one fact. No writer of any New Testament letter, I'm speaking of the books following the Gospels, they were written to the churches, they were written to Christians, no writer ever brings up this issue. Peter, Paul, John, Jude, James, the author of the book of Hebrews, they warned believers about many things, but they never warned them about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. So Christian, don't waste your emotional energy on something of which the scripture is silent. But what do you do when you speak the word of God to an unbeliever who knows, who really knows the Bible? Imagine saying to a Pharisee, don't you know what the prophet Isaiah says about the suffering servant, how he was pierced for our transgressions, how his soul was made an offering for guilt? Oh yes, says the Pharisee, I know that passage well. Would you like me to quote it from memory? What more can you say to unbelievers who have twisted every word of God so as to establish their own standard of righteousness? Romans chapter 10. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. It's very difficult. But now, and I'm speaking of the time in which Jesus said these words, but now the word has become flesh. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the word of God. The Pharisees were beholding the living in the flesh word of God, and they rejected him. 
They rejected the only means by which forgiveness can be granted. And it comes through the word of God. So what more can be done? Nothing. They have no hope. That brings us to the third point in our outline, the treasure in our hearts. I said earlier that all people by birth are held captive because they are citizens of the kingdom of darkness. But how will we know if a person belongs to the kingdom of God? By their fruit is what Jesus said. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. Well, how do you make a tree bad or make a tree good? You fertilize it. You keep feeding it the word of God until it starts producing fruit. And that's why Jesus lashed out at the Pharisees. You brood of vipers. They had probably heard the word of God more than, well, they had. They had, they had heard the word of God more than anyone else in their culture. And yet, there was no good fruit. They were the offspring of the serpent that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, where it says, I will put enmity, that's hatred, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, her offspring being the Christ. So no wonder the Pharisees hated Jesus. They hated him because their father, the father of lies, hated him. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? Well, Jesus' words here assume that not everyone is evil. His words assume that some people are good people. Can we be good people? These verses will not mean much to you today unless we have the hope that we can be good and that we can do good. But a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, we read about an encounter with a rich young man and Jesus. And it says this, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Well, no one is good but God alone. The Apostle Paul says much the same thing in Romans chapter 3. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good, not even one. Christian, that's who you were. You were no better than that brood of Pharisees who blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. But as much as Matthew and Paul seem to throw cold water on our hopes that we might be good, they also give us an answer, each in his own way. Here's Matthew's answer. It's on your screen here. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So we can ask God to give us something good. And Matthew says that the Father will give us good things. But since only God is good, those good things, in this case, is the Holy Spirit. 
And this is what Luke makes clear to us in his gospel when he records the very same message from Jesus. He says this, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you see that? The good thing, any good thing we have, comes from and through the Holy Spirit. Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, and every Christian does, then yes, you can still do evil. We know that all too well. But we can also do good. As much as we may struggle with the guilt of sin, we have the power to do good because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The one who is good lives in us. What were the Pharisees doing? They were speaking against the one, the only one, who could give something truly good to them, who could make them good. All that was in their heart was evil, and that's why all they could speak was evil. Verse 34 again. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Well, I have to say that for the last 40 plus years, verse 34 has been one of my favorite sayings in all of Scripture. I memorized it as, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. It's one I keep going back to because it's sobering, it's instructive, and it's helpful. What will I say tomorrow if I get out of bed and I'm cranky and I want to complain about everything to everyone, including my wife Mary? The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Or how will I respond next week if I get out of bed and the sun is shining, and the birds are singing, and I'm, I'm feeling good, and I'm, I'm making my way to church, and I'm singing a catchy tune, and someone cuts me off in traffic. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Or what will I do, what will happen to me when I get older, I'm only 72 now, when things break down even faster, and I've not stored up good things in my heart. Talk about saving up for your retirement. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Christian, this is a red flag verse for us. If you have communicated to anyone that you trust in Christ, and I hope you have, then you have committed to something that is impossible to keep. You have bowed the knee to the King of Kings, to the one you say is sovereign over all things. You have relinquished control to the Lord whom you say owns every article, every aspiration, every ambition in your life. You have publicly committed your trust to the one you say has paid the debt for every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. And if someone asks you, 
you say that you've taken up your cross and are following him. Are people seeing that? Have we counted the cost of following Jesus? Jesus asked this same question to his disciples. It's in Luke chapter 14. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. If you are a Christian... You are building a tower, and I'm not talking about a flagpole that you put up in your front yard. In those days, a tower was big enough to hold many people, sometimes hundreds. It was something by which you were remembered. The Tower of Eder, the Tower of Penuel, the Tower of Shechem, the Tower of the Hundreds. These are all towers in the Bible. If you are a follower of Christ, you are building something, at least you have communicated that, that is much bigger and grander and more difficult than anything you have ever attempted. And you are communicating to your spouse, your children, your parents, your co-workers, your fellow believers, your friends and neighbors, that you have a great treasure stored up. But will you finish? Will others see more than just a foundation? Will, uh, will people see the progress being made on this grand undertaking to which you have committed everything? Will others see evidence of the good treasure you say that you have? Or will they mock you? Tell me that you want to be a physician. That will take a lot of effort. Tell me that you want to be an ultra-marathoner. You will need to be very disciplined. Tell me that you want to be the governor of this state. You are very ambitious. Tell me that you are a Christian. I will pray for you. I say these things because I'm just like you. I've drawn a line in the sand and my wife and everyone around me knows it. I've made a commitment that is impossible to keep. And that's why I need the help of the Holy Spirit. That's why I need his word and fellow believers who will remind me every day of who my Savior is. That's why I was so touched this week to come in here and see people coming, volunteering their time. They had other things to do. Some of them took off time from work to come here and serve. I was so touched. I was really touched. I, I, you don't know how much I was. It really moved me. It encouraged me. It gave me courage to keep going in the faith. It gave me courage. I need that. I need that because I've made this commitment. I need your help. I need to do it with you. I need the gospel.
Matthew ends Jesus' teaching with this. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Do we see why this is true? The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. You will be judged for who you are. And who you are is not what you do, it's what you think in your heart. There is a day of judgment coming, a day when you will be judged by your words. Words are the measure of your life. Words are your life. When Moses was giving his final words to the people of Israel, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 32, he said this, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Law meaning scripture, meaning the word of God. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land. What is your life? If you are a Christian, it's the word of God. It's your very life. On that last day, you, as a believer in Christ, will be judged by a narrative. It will be the narrative of Jesus, the son of David, the one who calls himself the word of God. You will be welcomed into his presence because the strong man's house has been plundered by one who is stronger. Jesus has taken you as his treasure and you are in his house. And for those who haven't trusted in Christ, they will also be judged by a narrative, but it will be their own narrative. Those condemned to hell will be in the gloom of darkness. That's what scripture says. And they will be entirely by themselves. There will be no one else to talk to. No one else who will hear their groans forever. The only narrative they will hear is the narrative of their own hopelessly dark and isolated souls. I don't know about you, but the last person I would want to live with forever is myself. I'll close by saying this. Christian, what does your treasure chest look like? How much of the good things, the word of God, have you hidden away in your heart? Is it filled is it filled with the vocabulary of Jesus? Do we have biblical synonyms, biblical passages for how beautiful, how captivating, how delightful, enjoyable, invigorating, pleasing, and satisfying Jesus is? Well, I urge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, find out who you really are. Christian, your life is hidden in Christ. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. It's hidden in Christ. You won't find your identity, your purpose, your place in this world in the things that everyone else is so restlessly chasing after. You'll, find, you'll only find yourself in Christ. You will only find yourself in the Word of God. And if you're not a Christian, well, first... I'm glad you put up with me in this wonderful new place, sitting in your old and uncomfortable chair. <laughs> Let me ask you this, though. 
do you feel, do you feel that gentle tug on your arm? As though someone were taking you to a place you never thought you would go. I know you're not blind or mute like the man in this story, but there's some things you can't see. There's some words you can't understand. So ask questions. Ask those hard questions about science or sociology or the Bible or whatever it is that stands in, as an obstacle in the way of you knowing that Jesus is who he says he really is. We'll have some pastors up here to help you navigate those questions. So I ask you, please come. There's a tower to build when you commit your life to the Lord Jesus. There's a line to cross. There's a line to cross. That line will be the best line you have ever crossed, and you will never forget it. Let's pray. Lord, even if we knew every one of the 170,000 English words, they would not be enough to describe how good and pure, how just and righteous, how loving and merciful, how exceedingly delightful you are. We long for the day when we can think and say the things that the prophets saw only dimly when beholding your glory, the things that remain even now in the shadows. But your word is enough for us, Lord. Wherever we are in our walk with you today, it is enough. Your word is enough for us, Lord, to live a life fully pleasing to you. And though we do not now see you, we believe in you and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Give us more of yourself. Give us more of Jesus. Amen.